Welcome to another edition of the College Faith Podcast, sponsored by Global Scholars. This is Stan Wallace, your host, and my guest today is Dr. Charles Thaxton, a chemist who is one of the founders of a movement that reframed the debate over evolution and creation. Charles, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dan. So today we're talking about origins, how we got here. I found that if Christian students can't find an intellectually satisfying way to understand this issue, their faith inevitably suffers. And back in 1984, you co-authored The Mystery of Life's Origin, Reassessing Current Theories, in which you presented uh, at that time new way to think about this issue that's, that's helped many put the pieces together. And that book actually launched a movement of scientists and philosophers of science who began exploring the issue further. In fact, uh, initially, there were some pretty uh, well-known scholars who endorsed it. I'm on the back cover here seeing Robert Jastro, the founder uh, and former director of the Goddard Institute for Space Studies at NASA, said this is a valuable summary of the evidence against the chemical evolution of life out of non-living matter. It presents a very well thought out and clearly written analysis of the alternatives to the accepted scientific theory of the origin of life. And then there are other uh, noted scholars who endorse it as well. I'm really interested just to have you share with us how you got interested in this issue in the first place that then led to you writing this book, co-authoring this book. It just came about naturally as a, as a result of uh going through university and having the same questions asked that I guess all students ask, Okay, where do we come from? <laughs> I guess the specifics that led to the, that led to the book eventually was in graduate school, we had a, a visiting professor representing the American chemical society come to our university at Iowa state and uh, give a lecture. And I had never uh, until that point realized that origin issue had actually entered chemistry. Mm. I didn't hear about it in high school, although I'm sure if, if I went back and looked at my books, <laughs> it just shows I wasn't listening. Uh, and that happened a lot in those days. <laughs> but in graduate school, I did listen. On that very first lecture that I heard, there was a uh, skirmish between a couple of professors who were attending and, and the speaker. And I didn't understand what they were really all riled up about. But some years later, after I got into the subject more, I realized what they were wrestling with. That pursuit eventually led to my getting full-time into the subject. What was it they were disturbed about? It turns out one of the questioners was a uh, postdoc in biochemistry, and he was really upset with the speaker because he thought that there wasn't a fa sufficient foundation for what he was talking about. I didn't recognize it at the time, but I remembered this, the conversation that they had and began to look into it more as, as a sideline along my, with my studies during graduate school days. And so what was the point that the speaker was making that this grad student was taking, or the postdoc was taking exception to? He didn't agree with the experiments that the guy was talking about. Mm. I don't even remember which experiments they were, but they were disagreeing about that. And so I decided I needed to be informed about what the experiments were. Right. And, and that was my very basic introduction. I didn't know hardly anything about the subject. I was first realizing that origin of life could be dealt with in a chemistry lab. So take us the next step. You start to research this, and what do you begin to discover? I, I tended to agree with, with the questioner, 
at that lecture that I heard a few years before, I thought there was a lot of things going wrong with the experiments. I wondered whether they were legitimate or not. Mm. And so I began to talk to people. And it was only after I did my PhD and I wound up at Harvard having a chance to go to a couple of labs where work like this was being done to ask my questions. And there was one fellow at MIT down the road who uh, was actually doing experiments. And I talked with him a lot. And I began to realize, oh, I see. These experiments were being discussed as if they were sort of mimicking the events that happened on the early Earth. And uh, I began to consider, well, are these the conditions actually that were on the early Earth then? How do you know? Okay. And so I began to discuss the, with the geologists that I knew and uh, geochemistry people. And so that was the first issue. And then after that, just, just the lab experiments themselves, I began to appreciate more what was being involved, how they did them. So I went down to, to see actually what the glassware was like. The most famous one was the Miller experiment. Mm-hmm. And it's the standard one that passes all the gases through a spark chamber. And then the question is, does that fairly represent what the early Earth might have been like? Even though there was a boiling chamber there that circulates the gases, no one was actually saying that the early Earth was, in a, was boiling. I understood that. But there were many other facets of the experiment that seemed to me uh, they were giving credit to nature when the investigator should be getting some of the credit. They were trying to dismiss the experimenter. Ah, you started to see that you've got to have some involvement of a person in this experiment to actually produce these results? Right. You, you have to have that role. I increasingly, I realized it needed to be identified and recognized and she pointed out that it was not legitimate. Mm-hmm. Now, there were a lot of really good chemists who were doing work in the area, and many of them pointed out the shortcomings, but overall, especially the news writers, dismissed the role of the investigator almost entirely and talking about how this might have been how life had occurred on the planet. So you're doing this research, gathering this data, starting to see that the current theories don't quite explain what they say they explain, and, and then what happened? What was next in this journey? Well, I began to meet more and more people who uh, also questioned. One of them was Walter Bradley, one of my co-authors in the book. He was an engineering professor at Colorado School of Mines at first, and then he moved to Texas A&M at the time uh, I was beginning to write part of the book. In those days, there was a lot of things that had to be worked out. We had three different authors, a geochemist, a mechanical engineer, who was a thermodynamics expert, and then me, a chemist. And it sounded like three different authors. And so we had to rewrite this thing a number of times. (laughs) My concern was how to make this understandable to people who weren't chemists. So this new approach or way of framing the issue was named Intelligent Design. Did you come up with that name or how did that come to be? Well, I think I did, but not during the time that we were writing the book. Mm -hmm. Our, Our main concern during the book, we wanted to make the case to show that there was a legitimate place for what we call intelligent cause. We didn't call it intelligent design in the book. In fact, it was only a couple of years later that I was going through a lot of journals looking for an appropriate name we could use. I just felt like there needed to be a a more appropriate way to refer to what we were doing Mm -hmm. because we weren't doing theology. We weren't doing naturalistic chemistry either. In fact, we were offering a critique of naturalistic chemical evolution view, but we weren't saying that the supernatural was involved. Natural process was the issue. Does natural process get the job done? Hmm. We concluded, no, it does not. 
but no one could come up with a good, better answer about how it happens. Mm -hmm. We are trying to eliminate the role of the, of the investigator. But what is that more generally? Then I found a quotation from David Hume where he pointed out that uh, in science, anything was fair game. And so when I, when I put it in, the, in Hume's terms, I realized that we can approach this by natural cause and intelligent cause. Mm -hmm. But then we still needed a more general term for our overall operation. And I remember going through the library and just reading a lot of different science journals. And I think it was a science digest reviewing some of the materials about going to Mars. And that was talking in terms of what something looked like was intelligent design. And it just jumped off the page at me mm. <laughs> when he said that, used that phrase, intelligent design. And I said, that's exactly what I'm looking for. In other words, if, if they went to Mars and found something with certain characteristics, they would know that there was, there was life on Mars that had to design that. That's right. And so then we began to write in terms of intelligent design, what would be representative of that? And that's when we got into the whole subject of uh, DNA and not only the chemical process, but how would you tell if something was intelligently produced or not? Now, of course, this is precisely what NASA spent a lot of time on, asking the same question. Sure. We were just following them by a few years, <laughs> but eventually I think we came to the same conclusion uh, that there are ways to recognize when things are produced by intelligence. Hmm. Well, and I think you've just done this, but would you give me a very concise definition of this, at that time, new way to think about these things that had by now been termed intelligent design? How, how would you define that? Well, intelligent design basically is the structures have the characteristics that fit what we had identified as specified complexity that we could identify it as the result of intelligence. You're going to have to define specified complexity. We use the example of John Loves Mary. If you found that scrawled out on, a, on, on the beach, you would know that a clam didn't crawl up and scratch that in the sand. Mm. And somebody who knew the language, maybe Mary or John, wrote that. Now, what we wanted to know is, well, is there anything like that in the biological world? So let me, let me just summarize to make sure I understand. When you have very specific sequencing of something that, that seems to have a purpose, like John loves Mary to communicate something, it's hard to explain that in purely natural terms. That's right. Another example we used is if you go to the mountains in uh, South Dakota, you look up on the face and you see four presidents, mm. that structure did not happen by wind and erosion. So it's specified by the sculptor. <laughs> mm -hmm. He carved out the nose. He carved out you know, the eyes so you can identify it. Now, what made it specified is the fact that it matches a pattern that's elsewhere. Like people have seen the picture in the book. Okay. And this looks like that picture. So that's specified. Mm -hmm. Looks like the person that it represents. Right. Yeah. And, you know, this doesn't seem that... Um controversial in a sense, in that it's what so many sciences do already. I'm thinking of forensic science, investigating alleged crime scenes, where you're looking for those things that indicate there's a person involved. It, was, it wasn't just an accident or random forces that caused the death, but there was a, a, an intentional act of a person to, to, to kill the, the, the person found or of course, we mentioned the work that NASA has done and the SETI project, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence seems to assume, well, if you've got this kind of specified complexity, there's got to be life and archaeology, finding arrowheads in my part of the country. An arrowhead is a, is a perfect example. 
chipped flints. It doesn't happen just naturally. Yeah, right. So you're just taking what's already done in other sciences that that see effects and can't find natural causes. So say there must be an, an intelligence behind this, a person behind this. And saying, well, when we look at the origins of life, it seems to be the same case, right? That's right. By the mid-60s, it was already worked out that there was a code, a genetic code. DNA is like a language with four alphabetic letters. Mm -hmm. And a protein is a language with 20 letters. And so once we saw that, I was began to do the work on this. And so by 1974, 75, we already had our first draft. And they had to go through a lot of different publishers before we found anybody willing to even look at it. Why is that? Well, because they thought it was just ridiculous. Why? Sounds, again, it sounds like the rest of science looking for uh, an adequate explanation of the facts that are observed. I think they didn't like the notion in terms of an intelligent cause. Eventually, we had three or four different presses want to publish the book all at the same time. Ah. And we decided to go with Philosophical Library in New York because they would allow us to market the book. We had already realized by this time that there was a lot of opposition to what we were doing. And so in that case, we didn't want to be dependent upon a publisher to market the book. We wanted the opportunity to be able to market it ourselves so we could get the book distributed. We will return to the show in just a moment. But first, a word from our sponsor. Do you have a child, relative, or friend preparing for or attending college? What they need most are Christian professors who can help them learn to love God with their hearts and minds during these impressionable years. Global Scholars equips Christian professors to be there for them and walk with them during their years in college. Please visit www.global-scholars.org to learn how you can help equip Christian professors to show Christ's love on a campus near you and around the world. Please also check out the other podcast Stan and Dr. J.P. Moreland do together, Thinking Christianly. Whereas this College Faith podcast focuses more on the practical questions of thriving during the college years, the Thinking Christianly podcast is all about the ideas that shape the university, students, our broader culture, and the world. Visit thinkingchristianly.org or download episodes on your favorite podcast platform. And now back to College Faith. So uh, this book really did start a movement and reframe some issues and redistributed some categories, it seems to me. It used to be that people thought they have to come down in one or the other three categories as Christians when thinking about these things, right? You had to believe that God created everything as it is in six literal days, or you had to believe God created things, but it was over a long period of time. Or, or you, you were a theistic evolutionist where God, in some ways, used the evolutionary process. But it seems to me, and I want to hear your take on this, it seems to me that this view said, look, you, you can hold any of those views as long as you realize that ultimately there's an intelligence that's the explanation of life. So it's not really an issue of which of those is, is the right view purely via, vis-a-vis the science. Now, you might get to one of those views vis-a-vis, you know, biblical exegesis or theology, but related to the science, the issue is whether there's intelligence or not that can explain the complexity we see, this specified complexity, not one of those three is the way you've got to go to be a Christian. Is that, is that, is that a good summary or what did I miss or what else would you fill out? 
there are a lot of people who, who would uh, reject the notion that you can identify that it's intelligent. Okay. This is often a theistic evolutionary approach. Now, they weren't denying that intelligence was involved, but they were wanting to link it with the evolutionary process. Well, we weren't even thinking in terms of how to link anything. We were just wanting to find out what, what we can say from experience. Well, that sounds reasonable. So what was the pushback specifically? Well, the, the, standard, the standard approach has always been, at least from, from the beginning, was you're talking about God with another name. You're really uh, a coward. You don't want to say it. And so you don't say it's God, but that's really what you mean. Everybody knows it. Okay. Now, how do you, how do you respond to that? That seems like a legitimate objection. Well, except if we weren't, we weren't putting God in a test tube. We weren't, we weren't saying we could catch God or the supernatural. Mm. I, mean, I don't know how you would do that. Mm-hmm. And I certainly wasn't presuming that we had done that. But I was saying that we can, we can look at the structure of things and say whether or not we think natural cause produced it or if it required intelligence to produce it. Mm-hmm. And so our judgment was intelligence produced it. And you weren't specifying anything more about that intelligence, right? You weren't packing into that. It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? It was just purely, hey, there's got to be an explanation of, a, of an intelligence. Absolutely not. We were saying it's intelligent. Just like you find in the, in the crime scene, there's got to have been somebody who pulled the trigger, even though you can't specify a lot about that, that, that intelligence at this point, right? That's right. And, you know, I, I can certainly understand why a scientist who's got an a priori commitment to naturalism, that all that exists is the natural order, would, would reject this because, by definition, the explanation has to be natural. But there are Christian scientists and philosophers of science who reject it as well. So I'm still trying to get my head around why those who would have a worldview that includes realities beyond the natural world would not accept this thesis as viable. Well, I'm not sure, but I know that there are a number of people who are considering it. And I think that it's, it's, it's a generational thing. As, as people get more and more comfortable with it, hearing about it and so on, and they look into it, they find out it's not freaky at all. It's not spooky. It's not uh, doing things that are illegitimate. In fact, everything we talked about in the book is legitimate. Mm. I went to a couple of conferences where there were a lot of NASA people involved. And the NASA scientists said, <laughs> we, read, we read your book. And uh, the chemistry is no problem at all. It's just that they don't like the conclusion we came to. Mm. They don't like the term intelligent design. They think it, it opens the door to creationism is their, their view. They don't want to entertain that. So they, they reject it. And that was part of the reason why we felt like that there was a, a sufficient difference between what we were doing. In terms of point of view, are you looking at the Bible first and then looking at nature? Or are you looking at nature first and then coming to your conclusion. Well, it seems to me that the objections that, that we're talking about aren't really scientific objections. They're, they're objections from the philosophy of science, right? They're either objections in terms of we define science in a certain way, and therefore this doesn't count, or a, a philosophical commitment to not have certain implications follow from our science, uh, that you mentioned earlier, worrying about, well, this might lead to the belief that there's a, there's a creator. All these issues or objections are philosophical in nature. They're not scientific per se. Would that be fair? Well, that's fair. It's the limitations of what you, of what you can say that I think is, is where the ball, the ball game is. Right. And if you limit 
what you can say to only natural causes, again, that seems to shut down so many other fields of study, forensics, anthropology, SETI, and so on and so forth. That's true. We wouldn't have it. We would not, not have the Rosetta Stone being what it is if we had made that decision. Mm-hmm. But in science, there certainly is this philosophical commitment to what's known as methodological naturalism, right? So that even if you are a person who would understand that reality is more than just what we can see, uh, you can't bring that into your methodology, into your research, into your explanation. Uh, and, and it seems to me that's the crux of the issue. If one accepts methodological naturalism, they, they, they can't embrace intelligent design. If they reject that and say, as Al Planiga does and others, no, we ought to bring all knowledge we have to the table to be able to explain things that we're studying, then ID becomes a very viable option. Is that, is that fair? I think that's right. I do recognize that, um, just because you say something is produced by intelligence doesn't mean it is still have to be able to demonstrate it Mm -hmm. and still have to be able to uh, at least make a case for it. And that's what we tried to do is, is uh, make a case for why we concluded it. Mm. In fact, there's one famous scientist uh, at Berkeley who wrote a review of our book. The whole argument that he had was he he said we were bringing God into the science. (laughs) We, We didn't do that at all. Mm-hmm. What other misconceptions about intelligent design do you hear repeated that you think ought to be named and challenged? Well, probably the biggest one is, is it's just religion. Mm. And that's not true at all. And say again, you've already said this, but summarize why succinctly is that, is it not religion? We don't specify who the designer was. We just point out there is design. Mm. We don't uh, have any worship in it. There's nothing in it that would, that would fit the pattern of religion, except they would say that this is leads to that, and therefore it has to be rejected. Yeah, again, a philosophical commitment that's questionable at best, right? Yeah. Who, who do you think is doing the best work on this today, or, 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 or said differently, what resources today should students go to? I mean, they can certainly read The Mystery of Life's Origin, but uh, there's been so much else done, what do you suggest people pick up to get started thinking about this, especially if they're students in a a, a science field that's going to engage issues of origins? Steve Meyer is probably the best well-known. He wrote a book called uh, Signature in the Cell, which is all about the origin of life as well. Mm -hmm. In more general, there is um, the Discovery Institute. They have a lot of material about intelligent design. They're the ones who write about it the most, lecture about it. After intelligent design had been going for a while, I ran on to a man named Phil Johnson. You probably know. Mm -hmm. He was a professor at Berkeley. He was writing a book called uh, Darwin on Trial. And at that point, intelligent design just took off like a rocket. A lot of people knew about it after his book. It was a very well done book. I think it was probably the best book overall about critique of Darwin that's ever been done. I read it. I was fascinated because he's a legal scholar. His specialty is putting together an argument that brings together all the evidence to lead to a conclusion. So, you know, being an expert on that, he he just looked at all the evidence and where does it lead? He was certainly well read. He talked called me on the phone one day and he said, Charlie, I got a I've got something to tell you. He said, I know I've got a good book coming. 
I said, how do you know that? He said, I gave a lecture at Berkeley today and I split the Nobel prize winners. We had two who liked what I said and two who rejected it. (laughs) (laughs) So he said, I figure if I can split the Nobel prize winners, I've got a good book making. Great. Yeah. He did such great work uh, on this issue. Appreciate you mentioning him. And I'll include in the show notes links to all these books we've mentioned so people can easily find them and maybe maybe read read these these other works. For the people who are not well-versed in all these issues, Icons of Evolution by Jonathan Wells is probably still one of the best books out there covering all of these different issues. Okay. Anything else you want to make sure we touch on? Did we cover the waterfront? Yes, I guess so. I think we're going we're gonna to see one day that uh, intelligent design is more and more recognized as a legitimate inquiry. So Charles, I appreciate your uh, willingness to follow the evidence wherever it leads and ultimately to launch a new way of thinking about these issues that seems both scientifically appropriate and philosophically appropriate. I think we need both of those in our scientific inquiry these days. And unfortunately, that's not always the case. So I appreciate your your work on this issue and, and the way you have now turned it over to others who are extending uh, the, the work in, in, in very interesting and new ways. So, so thanks for being on the show and sharing the history with us, which, which helps us get some context. Thanks for having me on here. I appreciate it. That brings us to the end of this edition of the College Faith Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this conversation at the intersection of Christian conviction and higher education. Be sure to check out today's show notes at collegefaith.net slash podcasts, where you can find more information and links to the resources we discussed. If you found this podcast helpful, please help spread the word by liking my College Faith Facebook page at facebook.com slash collegefaith and pass this show on to others who may enjoy hearing our conversation. Please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars, to help equip Christian professors to be salt and light for Christ on their campuses. Until next time, this is Stan Wallace encouraging you to love the Lord your God with both heart and mind during the university years and beyond.